host, Julia, and welcome back to See You in My Next Life podcast, where I sit down to talk about some of your favorite manhwas. In this episode, we'll be covering the ins and outs of I'll Be the Matriarch in This Life. So, I think it was a week ago when I first posted the trailer episode, and I am so excited to be doing this first episode. It took, I don't know, 10 times more planning than the trailer did. Um, But I wanted to address, just in the beginning, some mistakes that I made last week. In my outro, I believe. So, I said that this was going to be uploaded every Wednesday, but I meant to say every other Wednesday. And that might be some, that might be a bit confusing because I said every Wednesday and then I said it was a bi-weekly podcast. Um, And some people may be wondering, well, which one is it? So I'm just addressing it. It's a bi-weekly podcast. So every other Wednesday. And I hope to stick to that schedule as best as I possibly can. I also said last episode that I am going to be doing Who Made Me a Princess as the first episode. That was a lie. I lied to you. I'm sorry. Um, but in actuality, I just made a last minute decision to change it to I'll be a matriarch in this life. I don't know why, but I realized I shouldn't have made a false promise. And I won't be doing that again. Because sometimes I do make random last minute decision changes. And, you know, everything just changes from there on out. How I plan the episode and what goes in it. And you don't need to know that, to you? I it, it was planned all along. So, I will stop saying what's going to be in the next episode. You're just going to have to look forward to it. Yes, so let's get into I'll be a matriarch in this... Is it? What is it? What is it called again? <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's get into I'll be the matriarch in this life. So, Florentia or Florentia, I still don't know which one it is because the trailer, I mean, not the trailer, the translation team is switching between the two names and I can't figure out if it's Florentia or Florentia. Both have been used. Um, <laughs> we're just going to use Florentia. So, Florentia was reincarnated as the illegitimate child of the richest family in the empire. She had thought that everything would go well in the future, but her father passed away at the ripe age of 11. (laughs) Sorry, that was uncalled for. Um, And her relatives left her at the doorsteps. The honorable family that she was so proud of was completely ruined after her father died because her father was the only one that loved her. And so after that, she was just seen as like, a disgusting, illegitimate child of a filthy commoner, stuff like that, and she was kicked out of her family. So if we break it down just a little bit, it's not too much of a spoiler because all of this happens in the very first episode anyway. So if you'll go out and read it, you'll find this out in no time. But she basically dies while reading this novel in Korea. So it kind of starts out like most other Manhua starts out. Um, And she gets reincarnated as... Florentia in the Lombardi family and she's super happy about it. I mean, she thinks that her life is going to be super easy going from now on. She doesn't have to work hard um, and she can just sit back and relax because she was born into a wealthy family and turns out that's not the case because her entire family doesn't like her. Even though her grandfather gave her permission to use the Lombardi name when she was younger, he didn't really care all that much about her and her dad was too cowardly to stand up for her. So, 
or to make a difference. So once he died, she was seen just as, as just as useless as he was. And I think when she's 15, she starts to develop an interest in business and she studies it and um, her family kind of recognizes the talent that she has. So she gets appointed to be her grandfather's assistant for business when he is bedridden. And she does a really great job. She basically manages all the finances and companies of the wealthy Lombardi family. And she's basically keeping it from falling apart while her grandfather is bedridden. But her uncles kick her out anyway, saying that she was a disgrace and they just can't take her anymore. And so she gets kicked out onto the streets. But the one thing that she remembers before she gets kicked out is this conversation she has with her grandfather who tells her that if he knew of her talent sooner, he would have made her the family head. And she was like, but I'm an illegitimate kid. Like, that's, I mean, you know, in this time, that's a big deal and not a good thing. Um, and the grandfather's like, that doesn't matter. You're still a Lombardi. I mean, you're better than all of these trashy kids that I have. And honestly, <laughs> grandfather Rulek's children, except Shannonette, which you will, we will talk about her later. They're all really bad. Well, and Florentia, aka Tia, uh, we'll just call her Tia, her father. He's the nicest of all of Grandfather Rulek's children, but he has a lot of room for character growth, and so we'll just see where that takes him. Um, and so yeah, in the first episode, basically, she just her hair is short, she's walking on the streets, and she was living not really by the penny. She has like a sack of money. And she, but she's wasting it kind of on drinking and finding out the news. And she's like, oh, well, the Lombardi family supported the first prince, but the first prince ended up falling along with the empress and the second prince rose to power. And she was like, everybody is fool. They're all fools. I mean, if I just was given a chance again, I would show them that I could save the family. And uh, of course she's drunk. So she's walking on the road and she gets hit by a horse carriage. And what do you know? She gets reincarnated again into her seven-year-old self. And she was really confused at first, but it didn't take her long to realize what has happened and for her to immediately begin planning how she's going to become the next matriarch of the family, basically. How she's going to change everything and not be how she was before. And it honestly, it's really good. The story is good. This is kind of, it, this was a really long summary of the story, but I just wanted to kind of go into details of the first chapter so you get a good idea. And I didn't spoil anything too much, so if this interests you, trust me, there's going to be a lot more to uncover. But if you haven't already read I'll Be the Matriarch in This Life, then you should definitely go do that because it's so incredibly good. It's very underrated. Not many people know about it, I think. At least I don't think so because I don't see many people talking about it online or in person. And yeah, I have genuinely enjoyed the 43 chapters that are out so far. If you are if you haven't read it, why are you listening to this podcast? Unless you're my family <laughs> or my friends. But it's good. It's good. I would highly recommend it. So let's talk about some of the best moments and I'll be the matriarch in this life, because there are some really, really amazing moments in this manhua that I just really want to go into detail, kind of just describe what happened, maybe even analyze some parts of it. So the very first best moments, I'd say, both of them, well, two of them, 
are in chapter three. So really early on, we get to see Tia's full potential as a badass female lead. Um, first is just her going to the library and basically picking up a book called People of the South, which is a it's a difficult. I believe, autobiography about this lady who goes into the mountains and she writes about these people that she meets there and all sorts of psychological aspects. It's really fascinating. Oh my god, please correct me if I'm wrong because I may not be 100% right on what the book is about, but I know that it is just a challenging read um, that many scholars pick up. But apparently Tia did not have the chance to read this book in her past life and she was really looking forward to it but once she was kicked out of the Lombardi house she couldn't get her hands on it so it was the first thing that she picked up when she went to the library and the librarian was really confused and startled when this seven-year-old girl walks in and is asking for this complex book to read but he gives it to her anyway and you know I'm sure he just thinks like many others do at the beginning when they see her carrying around that book, that she just really liked the green cover and believed that it was a fairy tale book and was just really fascinated with the decor on the outside instead of what was actually the inside, the contents of the book. But it was just pretty satisfying to see his face because it was it was the flame, I believe, that initially sparked everyone's interest in this little seven-year-old who was apparently a genius for her age. The second best moment also happens in chapter 3 shortly after when Tia actually just leaves the library and she's sitting outside of her grandfather's office to wait for him or wait for her father to come out of a meeting, a business meeting they were having. And we get introduced to the baby versions of the villains of the story. So we have Belsack and... <laughs> I'm sorry, I'll talk about Balzac later, but he is, a, he is, he's so, ugh, we despise him. Anyway, there's Balzac and there's Astelieu, I believe that's how you pronounce his name. Balzac and Astelieu were, were also the villains in Tia's previous life. They bullied her, they verbally and physically abused her, from when they were children to when they were adults, and no one did anything about it. I mean, her father tried to protect her up until she was 11 and he died, but even when he tried to protect her, the, her uncles would just be like, oh, Gallahan, which is her dad's name. Oh, Gallahan, you're just, you're being too sour over ch children's play. And, you know, Gallahan being kind of the Tibbin man that he is wouldn't really do anything about it because he didn't want to start any conflict. And so this harassment against Tia would continue and she was just too scared to do anything about it and put up with any of it. So, of course, they're walking down the hall and Tia just kind of starts giggling at them because they look so small. I mean, from her previous recollection of them, they were, they grew up into being like gamblers and womanizers and, and things like that. But these mini versions of Belisac and Astiliu really crack her up. So she starts laughing at them, but she quickly realizes that that was a mistake because even if they're smaller versions of the adults that were bullying her, um, that didn't matter because they were still bullies. They were still mean. They were still evil. Um, they were still planning to harass her wholeheartedly. So, of course, they start calling her terrible uh, names and 
telling her that she's of lowborn class and that she's not a Lombardi and all of these things. And she kind of just like puts up with it until Belsack like comes over and grabs her hair and starts like throwing her against the ground. And then she headbutts him in the face and then starts hitting him across both his cheeks with the people of the South book, which I believe is just such an iconic move. I mean, I still can't get over that, but she just continues to slap him, telling him that, yeah, just she continues to slap him. She doesn't really put up with it in the beginning. I'd say she does, but she kind of just throws the insults right back at him, basically calling him immature, childish for saying and those insults to her. And in the beginning, yeah, he's just basically calling her half-blood and stuff like that. But it was it was when he starts, like, physically harassing her and telling her that she's not a Lombardi, which is key fact, um, that's when she gets really angry and starts to push back and stand up for herself. And she calls him a no-good dog. I am quoting this from the page as, we spe- as, I, as I speak. And yeah, she just keeps, she just keeps hitting him. But he keeps insulting her somehow as she's hitting him. Um, but then he, he starts crying. And of course, with all the ruckus that's going on, with the slapping with the, of the books and the crying and all of that. So all the men from grandfather's office just run out being like, what in the world is going on? And we kind of noticed this from the start, but we'll, we'll notice it more later on, that Belisac and Estelle, they're, like, they're both cousins, like they are with Tia. But they're kind of partners in crime in the bad sense because partners in crime is also used to um, refer to two best friends, which they are, but they're also partners in crime because they're doing criminal things. At least maybe not what you'd consider criminal as a child, but when they grow up, they definitely turn out to be some questionable characters. But Astelio is more of like the supporter who makes fun of Tia, but won't physically do anything um whereas Belzac is more of the bold arrogant one yeah I I was about to say that he doesn't cry as much but he does they're both crybabies so that's on them honestly but everybody's like rushing out and everyone's shocked at the scene that they see because normally Tia used to be known at that age to be a crybaby um and she would run away and not tell anyone of the harassment that she was going through from her cousins. But this time we see Tia looking like she's also attacking Belisac. So both of them look wounded. And there's this whole scene going on and everyone's confused. Of course, each parent runs to their respective child. Um, the uncle like pushes Tia, so that's even worse. But the main point that I get from this chapter is that it's Tia's first official time to shine in front of her grandfather and when she is given the chance when she is given the chance to speak about what truly happened because Astelio is telling a different story and Belsac is telling a different story and they're all annoying grandfather because they're interrupting him and stuff like that um but when it finally comes where grandfather asks Tia what happened she tells him that she did hit him, but she did not believe that she did anything wrong because he insulted her and called her names. Um, And she goes into depth of like what they called her. But she said that it didn't even bother her that they called her lowborn or that she should go back to like a commoner's village. She said that it bothered her that they called her not a Lombardi. 
And this like piques the grandfather's interest. I don't know if she did that on purpose because she's clever and really calculating as you see the more we, we read. But she says that it's because he called her not a Lombardi. And that was the most offensive part of this because she says that her grandfather gave her the right to have that last name and she should be able to keep that right. Um, no one should, no one has, you know, the right to tell her who she is and who she's not, basically. Um, and he, yeah, he's interested in that. The grandfather's like, oh, okay, I see. Uh, maybe this kid's not as bad as I thought she was. But he's even more startled when he realizes that she's reading People of the South because she's carrying that green book with her still. Um, and she basically, like, apologizes for, you know, using the book to slap Belisac. And which I'm sorry, I, I really wanted to wait a little bit later when I'm talking about the characters in the development to mention this, but Belisac's name sounds like Balzac, and I feel like that is all the more reason to not like him as a character. So just just putting that out there. Why would you name your child Belisac and not expect him to get bullied for that? How do they not bully him for that? Florentia is such a pretty name, and Belisac really really you were thinking you were going through all those baby names and you're the okay like the, literally Belisac is the son of the empress's sister and the, the eldest son of the duke I don't think he's a duke my bad but of the Lombardi family and you name your child Belisac I can't get over that I can't I can't get over that I mean his name's a little easier to say than Estelle or Estelle but um Belisac is just it's god awful. Um and no matter how you spell it, it's always ballsack to me. So he acts like a ballsack because you touch him and he like runs over. He I don't even never mind. I don't even know where I was going with that. Um but you might be wondering, Julia, why is this scene so important besides and, and why is it cool besides the fact that it's her first official way to catch her grandfather's attention to her amazing genius and prowess. And the second reason is that she is putting everybody in their place. And it is so satisfying to see. I mean, Belsack and Esteliu, they get beaten up for the first time ever. They're the ones that are in trouble. Um, not according to their parents, but according to the, to the grandfather, who is like the head of the household and gets to, gets to decide all of that. And all the uncles are like, apologize to my kid, like, right now. How dare you do this, like, you wench, you little bitch. And she's like, excuse me, I didn't do anything wrong, so I'm not going to apologize. Which infuriates the hell out of them. Um, but grandfather doesn't say anything. So she's just like, okay. We kind of see how the relationship is beginning to bloom. And later on, she you can definitely see how Tia becomes the grandfather's favorite child, for sure. But not, yeah, all those add up together Tia is finally making a stand in her new life and it's really really satisfying to see so the second best moment I would say is when Tia stands up to the first prince now there's a lot of great moments where Tia is progressing in her plot to recruit people um, that will help her become help her in getting closer to reaching her goal to become the next matriarch of the family but of course this one is another one of the baddest moments that just leaves you satisfied I mean you're expect 
expecting this to happen and you really desperately want it to happen and you're not disappointed. And it's one of those moments. It's when Tia uh, stands up to the first prince. And you may be noticing a theme where Tia's standing up for herself, but she doesn't do it in the way of like, stop that! It's more of like, okay, and? Like, what do you want me to do about it? Type of vibe that's going on. And it's so iconic. Like, it just makes you root for her more than you're already doing, than you already are, because you just see that she's incredibly smart, and you want to support her in that, but also that she doesn't take any shit from anyone. Like, you go, girl. Even if it's royalty, you don't bow your head to them, especially not a little brat named... I forgot his name. See, he was so immemorable that I didn't even remember his name. I just refer to him as the first prince because that's all I know him as, because apparently he's gonna... I don't want to spoil it. Gosh darn it, I don't want to spoil it. But if you want to figure out what happens with the Empress and the First Prince... Okay, you know what? It's actually not a spoiler. You figure it out in the first episode anyway. The Empress and the First Prince end up dying. So, because the First Prince is technically supposed to succeed his father uh, in the throne. But later on, the Second Prince ends up becoming the Crown Prince and succeeding his father. And... Tia kind of mentions this in the first chapter where, when she's drunk on the side of the road saying that her family w- was a f- w- they were all fools for supporting the first prince instead of the second prince. Because now that the first prince is out of power and the empress has died, now the Lombardi family is suffering. But of course this happens down the line when Tia was kicked out in her second life. So this is the third life. So she has time to start over and... She is planning to change all of this. Uh, She's planning to change the destiny and fate of the Lombardi family by becoming matriarch. So she's not going to support the first prince. But of course, she's not mean to anyone that's not mean to her. So I didn't really know that it was the first prince at first that she was encountering uh, until later. But yeah, he just basically walks in and starts ordering people around. And he drops his hat like two inches away from his feet. And then he's like, hey, you there. Like, you wench, like, come pick it up for me. She's like, excuse me? (laughs) Like, what did you just call me? And he just continues to yell um, and order her around to pick up her hat. I mean, to pick up his hat and show him around to the front entrance of the manor. And she's just looking at him in disbelief. She's like, who is this bitch? And what what does he want? And why is he acting like that? Um, and I feel like the first prince is, expects her to like bow down and apologize and beg for mercy as soon as as soon as the maids come running. They're like, first prince, where are you? Like, don't run away. Then because he kind of smirks and he's like, mm-hmm. it's like, see, I'm the first prince. Now what are you going to do? Bow down and like apologize. I may spare your life. And she's like, um, no, thank you. So she just kind of walks away and says, pick up your hat by yourself. Why did you drop it? If you just wanted to pick it up again um, and leaves. Badass move, the prince is infuriated. (laughs) But this scale of events is also big, not only in the fact that she stands up to the first prince, but the fact that she stands up to the first prince creates a domino effect that is important later down in the storyline. Because because the first prince is so infuriated with Tia's actions and her refusal to bow down to him, he orders all the imperial knights to invade Lombardi's manor in search for her. Um which is actually a break of the pact between the royal and Lombardi family. So basically, 
the royal family cannot invade the Lombardi family and the Lombardi family cannot invade the royal family. Surprisingly enough, the Lombardi family has almost as much as almost as much power as the royal family does. They're both extremely powerful and in order to make sure that there's peace, they cannot disrupt the houses of the other family. So this little kid like breaks this pact um, embarrasses and humiliates himself, um, because the grandfather personally comes out and is like, this little kid just destroyed a century-old pact, and if we wanted to, we could basically declare war on the empire just for this. And the prince is like, oh. But he's still an arrogant little bitch, so he still blames it all on Tia for whatever reason. But yeah, he gets kicked out, um, and the emp- and he goes crying to his mommy, and his mommy is like, okay, we'll make them pay because she's a crazy bitch too. And for whatever reason, all the empresses are and nearly every manhua that I've read. I don't know what it is about that. But just somehow that's what I've noticed because it's either the empress plays a big role, but she's evil or she's just a side character that doesn't play any role. So if anyone has a recommendation with an empress that is kind to the main character and plays a significant role in her life, I would like to read that because that would be an interesting dynamic to see. I've seen it with the emperor loads of times, but not really with the empress. I've seen the female lead become empress, but not her mother being an empress and her mother being extremely supportive and all of that. Or even if it's not the mother, like, why are the, all the empresses evil? I really don't understand. I mean, you do you, I guess. But I don't think ruling... Okay, look. Some people will continue to defend them saying it's girl power. It's not girl power if you're trying to take over the world, okay? It is still girl power if you're trying to take over the world and you support other women. But if you're just being crazy and you're destroying everything... um then it's not girl power. And I'm sorry to break it to you, but it's it's really not in this case, though. So, yes, the Empress and the First Prince end up start, they begin their plot to take down the Lombardi family, which is a little funny because at first the Empress was like, ooh, Tia, like she's around the age of the First Prince, like we may set them up or something. And then uh, the First Prince goes to Lombardi's house for one reason or another and he meets Tia and he's like I hate Tia and the mom's like okay never mind <laughs> we're not gonna marry you off to her which is a good thing because now we don't have to f we don't have to deal with any love triangles down the road I know they're they're nine or ten whatever age they are at this point I just mean later down the line so Tia tries to hide the fact that she's really good at business administration and finance. Only right now. So she's trying to subtly hint at it and help her dad gain more traction with it. She's really trying to help him grow because the more recognition he gains, the better it is for everyone, basically. Everyone, I mean her and her dad. So the only, the only two important people in this entire series. But she's trying to help him out and she has... An incredible gift for business, but she's just trying to hide her entire potential from her grandfather and her tutor called Clarevin. And I kind of didn't think Clarevin was all that important at first. We thought that it was just the grandfather that she was trying to hide from, but Clarevin is a very perceptive guy and he notices 
almost right away her plot, but he's still unsure. He notices a lot of the things that the grandfather doesn't notice. Um, but both of them realize that she's an unordinary child with gifts. And even with that, not all of her potential has been unlocked. So it's always really cool whenever she is involved in some sort of scene where her advice is taken or she is able to express her talent because it's really cool to see and her, the scenes between her and Clarivan are amazing not only because Clarivan is a super hot man but also because I love the relationship but the fact that Clarivan could step on me is a perk for sure I'd say that's a perk that's so awkward just saying that in this this, this room with knowing people are gonna listen to this in the future no, but I am not ashamed, okay? Because that is what I think. Clarivan is extremely attractive. Like, damn, like, why can't he be my tutor? I'll just, just, <laughs> why can't I be reincarnated? Um, but anyways, I'm very impressed with Clarivan's detection skills. And so is Tia, apparently, because she ends up telling him prematurely about her plan to take over the world. Just kidding, not take over the world, but her plan to basically take over the Lombardi family. And he surprisingly agrees and says that she would be a fine candidate for the role of matriarch and decides to help her in this. Little steps, though, baby steps. So first, her goal is just to become more educated and in etiquette and other fancy noble things. But he just helps her out in that at first, and I'm sure they will begin plotting together later on. But it's so cool because whenever they see each other, nobody else knows, but they like make eye contact and it says everything. Um, so it's really, it's really cool. I don't know how, but drawings just, you can really see emotion in them and it's really cool. It's really amazing. So another best moment, and I've lost track at this point at how many best moments there have been, but we talked about the meeting with the first prince and now let's talk about the meeting with the second prince. The meeting with the second prince was definitely less chaotic, less aggravating, because the second prince is this really cute, shy boy who is rummaging in the woods for leaves because he's starved to death, poor thing, and he's also being poisoned because the empress is trying to kill him. And he's really just, you can see the life is being drained out of him, which is really sad. So more than anything, I think the scene between them was really wholesome because Tia basically she spends a lot of time before their meeting uh planning for major events but she asks this medicinal friend doctor of hers called Estella to make this um nutritious child medicine for her which turns out if taken in small doses throughout a long period of time can help build up poison prevention so she was making this especially for the second prince. At first I was confused. At first I thought she was making it for her father because her father dies early on in her life so she is planning to save him as well and I thought that she would be giving it to her dad to prevent that but turns out he dies from some sort of lung disease instead of poison. So we find that out later though. I, I definitely had all sorts of crazy assumptions with what she was planning but I love how it's not always predictable with the way that the story is written. But it's such a it's such a heart-to-heart -heart moment when she's with the prince and she 
tears up on multiple occasions seeing just how sad his life has been. But she gives him some candy and the medicine and she's like, drink this like half a teaspoon day uh, every day and it'll help with the poison because he still has to eat the food because they don't give him any other food but the food that they have already poisoned. So he is forced to eat the food knowing that there's poison in it. He ends up surviving from the poison even then, even without the medicine, as Tia tells us beforehand, but he ends up suffering with a lot of problems later in life and she wants to help prevent that for him. So she's being really nice. The prince seems like he's a he's a little bit of a pushover, at least in his early ages, because he doesn't even know Tia and she just walks up to him and gives him these things and she tells him that she wants him to live and he's like, oh my gosh, I love you. And I know it's cute and I know a lot of people are are fine with this super fast progression, but somehow it doesn't sit right with me because she visits him once and tells him that she'll visit him again with books and other materials to help him. But she doesn't visit him like years after and I don't even know at this point if she's going to visit him and until much, much later. But this poor guy, like all he does is think about the next time he'll see her again, even though he's like 10 years old um, because she was the only one that was kind to him. Which I do understand that. I am not at all blaming him for that. But somehow it just seems like really rapid and really all of a sudden and I don't know how to process it. But it was still a really cute moment and development in their relationship. But it was 100% pure coincidence how she was even able to meet the prince. Um, the second prince that is. Because she met him in the forest. And she wasn't even, I mean she was close to the royal palace. But what are the odds that she meets them there? And what are the odds that it's right by the carriage? And what are the odds that the carriage gets stopped? I mean, all of these line up perfectly. As if fate led them together. And that's why I almost named this podcast It's Fate, If It's Fated. Because literally every story that I've read, it has to be built upon one event or another that has been fated. Or mere coincidence. Or else the story would progress completely in an entirely different way. Or maybe not at all. So part of me believes, yeah, these, this story is created based off of that. It has to be faded. That's the whole point. But it's still cool to sometimes, it's still funny to think about that sometimes. Um, but of course, I do love, I still love their interaction. It was really sweet and... I don't think there was much I'd, I would change about it. So I have one theory, and I tried to think of some other theories, but they're not really coming to mind. I do have a lot of other theories, but they're more scattered in the podcast. I tried limiting to them to one section where I just talk about all the theories I have, but I realized it's not really going to work out. So let's just think about the one theory I have right now regarding the second prince. How does she save him necessarily? Because we're only up to chapter 43 at the moment, and she's only met him once at this point. Of course, the novel, the Manhua novel, has um, is already up to hundreds of chapters and a lot has already happened then. But I'm reading the, um, the art story, um, the illustrated story. So at this point, we're only up to chapter 43. How does she exactly save the prince? Because from what I know, she just gave him medicine to help with the poison. But unless she visits him again, and for another life-changing reason, then she won't really meet him until 
he is an adult and has graduated from the academy, which is by that point, life has already taken its course and she hasn't done anything for it because the same thing happened in her previous life. So that's just, I'm just curious about that. I know we'll see how the story goes, but I would like to know if there are any other drastic steps that she takes because she's been taking a lot of drastic steps to save a lot of people's lives and to save a lot of people's futures, I guess. The future of her entire family. She's been doing a lot to change that. And she has a lot on her plate and a lot of on, a lot on her shoulders. So I know that the first, I mean, not the first, the second prince is not the first thing on her mind at the very moment, but I'm still curious as to when he's going to pop up again. So, of course, as we talked about Clarivan before, we can't talk about Manhua without talking about the ships in Manhua because what is this? This is a romance historical reincarnation podcast. And what is a romance podcast without some romance in it? So let's talk just a little bit about the ships and hot guys in the Manhua. Of course, right now she's still like, I think, nine, ten years old. Um, so I'm not really shipping her with anyone, uh, because at this point in time, there aren't that many ships forming. In other Manhuas, there are a lot of ships, and we can talk more in depth about them, but in this specific one, not much has developed since she's really focused on her goal right now, which is completely respectable and understandable. So instead of ships, let's talk about the attractive guys. Um, oh, and by the way, we all know that Tia's going to get together with the second prince. I don't think that this is a love triangle, so I think it's more of just like a, we already know the end result, but that's completely fine too. For whatever reason, I don't know why, but I had like a feeling the first prince would develop feelings for her, because there's there's this dynamic, there's this trope in some manhwas that I've seen where the arrogant guy gets like put in his place, and he's like, oh my gosh, that's the first time anyone has ever told me stop before. Or no before. And then he like falls drastically in love with the female lead. Which happens in some cases and obviously doesn't. In this case, I believe it just started a rivalry between the two. But as we see on Tia's ninth birthday, the the first prince shows up and she's all desperately trying to run away from him and he keeps following her. Um, and her cousins, Belisac and Astelieu, like show up and they're like, oh my gosh, first prince. And they're like fawning over him because they admire him. And he grabs Tia and he's like, you're arrogant and ignorant, but you're better than these, like, filthy rats. And I was like, whoa, okay, so that's offensive, first of all. But second, I was like, okay, so he apparently likes Tia more than them. So he'd rather spend time with her than them, which kind of confused me just a little bit, but I feel like it may be a slight hint towards the future. If there is going to be a love triangle... It's going to be between the first prince and second prince. We already know she's going to end up with the second prince, unless there's going to be a new character introduced later on. But as we all know, we don't want her to end up with the bastard first prince because he's disgusting. And I don't care if he likes her better than her cousins. He's still rude. Like, can, can you fuck off, please? I would not like you to be around Tia at all. Um, he's just a bitch with a terrible attitude. Um, but anyways, that's just completely 100% speculation. Don't quote me on that. I know that the f the second prince like has a crush on her and all that, but the first prince, 100% uh, assumption. I have no idea what's going to happen. So I kind of look forward to seeing what will happen. Um, in the future, that is. Galahan. So let's talk about Galahan. So Galahan is Tia's dad. And I don't know why, but I didn't expect him to be 
like attractive like question mark question mark because so many dads I mean so many dads are are attractive in Monhoas like I mean if you I know I've mentioned who made me a princess a lot before but Claude he is one big fat dilf and I I mean even even Athy, even Athanasia, even his own daughter in the Manhwa says you don't that says that he doesn't look like someone who'd have a kid. He doesn't. He looks like he's eighteen, and he's like twenty or thirty something, and he looks like he just came out of the womb. I mean, his skin, his hair, he is a gorgeous chef's kiss. Um, and Galahan doesn't really compare to Claude, but Galahan is so precious, um, and he's so sweet and he's so cute and. Um, he's also a Delph in a, in, with a different vibe than Claude for sure, but I don't know why Galahan was unexpectedly attractive and there's like a Galahan fan club for him now apparently. So I'm just, I'm still looking for the application form cause you know, I'm going to sign up for that, but what? Like he's so cute. Like every time he's in frame, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's the dad. Um, so yeah, we have him. And then as I've already talked about Clarivan. If this wasn't a podcast, I would fill the screen with five different hot pictures of Clarivan because I can't get enough of him. Every time he comes in frame, I like pause and stare at his face for like a good five minutes because, you know, I had to take in all the beautiful art of him that I can get. But wow. I mean, I, I'm so mad that Tia wasn't born like 20 years earlier because I would have wanted her to end up with Clarivan instead. I'm sorry, Sumi, but I... Actually, maybe it's for the best because Clarivan can end up with me instead of Tia. So that's fine. She can have the second prince. I'll have Clarivan. And last, but certainly not the least uh, section that we'll be covering today will be characters and development. So I know we've already been through characters. But if we look at I'll Be the Matriarch in This Life, if we look at the Manhua as a whole... Um, I'll realize, I realize that there's a lot of development that's gone on and some characters that I haven't mentioned at all yet will be mentioned here and we'll kind of talk about what we know about them and what is expected to happen with them. Whether you've already read ahead or haven't read ahead or whether you already know spoilers or not. And I will be talking about some spoilers but I will say spoiler warning before so you can skip to end the spoiler because this is this spoiler is something that hasn't been in the manhua yet hasn't been revealed i just looked ahead because i was trying to do research for this podcast episode so once again let's start off strong with our good man galahan um or galahan i how do you even pronounce it because i always pronounce names and then people start screaming at me because apparently i said it wrong so if i am hurting your ears by pronouncing it incorrectly that is completely fine. I understand. Yell at me all you want. But the one name that I will not take any crit- criticism or correction on is Balsack. Okay? Balsack is Balsack and that is that is it. There's no argument there. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. So Galhan, he, he begins to gain actually strength from Tia to stand up to others. First off from his sister, uh, Tia's aunt. So Aunt Shenanette is what we call her. She begins to, you know, convince Galahan that he needs, if he wants to protect Tia, he needs to be able to stand up and be, you know, financially stable on his own, stand up to his brothers, their brothers. Um, so, and not only does he take Aunt Shenanette's advice, but Tia's brave and bold personality uh, and her advice helps him come out of his shell and 
put his knowledge to use because he's an extremely smart individual and he always has a nose in a book, but he's always too scared to come out with his ideas and, you know, propose a business or decide to invest, for example. So he's too afraid of to do that, but he actually decided to act on one of his ideas for once because of Tia. And he wants to, yeah, he wants to create a clothes business, like a ready-made clothes business, um, and in his name, not the Lombardi's name, because he wants to be able to pass this business down to Tia, so that she'll have something when she's older, which is really sweet. Oh, and did I talk about how he wants to give her a debutante dress, so when she's, when she has her debutante ball, he's gonna pick out her dress for her, and he was like, normally this is the mom's job, but I want to do this for you, and I was like, oh my god, we rarely see such loving father relationships. At least I do. Maybe you guys read a lot of them. But even Who Made Me a Princess or Daughter of the Emperor, which is some of my two favorite daughter, daddy, daughter, um, father, daughter relationship manhwa. Even then, the father kind of ends up initially not liking his daughter and then grows to love her with time. Um, But here, Galahan is just initially such a doting dad. And it's so sweet to see um, that he... It's just adorable. And I live for their relationship. Like... It makes me smile every time I read it. Um, second is the twins. So we have not talked about the twins at all this time, at this up till this point. And their, their names are also hard to pronounce, but I believe it's Mayron and Giliu. Um, but I will just say Mayron and Gilly for short, because I believe she calls one of them Gilly. So they're identical twins, blonde hair, blonde eyes, super pretty twins. Um, but I'm still suspicious of them because Tia was suspicious of them in the beginning when they started clinging to her. So ever since they found out that she beat up Belisac, um, they were like, oh my gosh, Tia, you're so cool. And they started like clinging to her and, um, and hanging out with her all the time and asking her to play with them. And she was suspicious of them because in her previous life, they would bully her. Oh, they wouldn't bully her. It's my bad. They would turn a blind eye to when she was being bullied by Belisac and Esteliu. So uh, they would just completely ignore her existence. And yeah, she was really suspicious because she was like, why are they like, why do they like me now? That doesn't make any sense. Um, And after a while, she ends up growing to like them. And they do become very overprotective of her when she gets hurt. And they're really cute, and it's really just adorable to me how much they like and care about her, but something still seems off, because in her first life, like I said, they ignored her, and later on, Tia says that after Aunt Chinanette and her husband Servestian divorce, um, the twins take their father's last name, Schultz, and they abandon the Lombardi name with him, meaning that they would abandon Tia. So if this is still going to go in that direction, that would mean that they would completely abandon Tia, which in my case is a complete X in the book because it doesn't matter how, oh, clingy they are. I mean, if they're just going to abandon her in the end, why even bother trying to become close to her in the first place? Um, So that's why that still seems off because I love them right now, but I can't help but still have that thought in the back of my mind that it's possible that they'll abandon her and I don't know if that's going to happen. And I really hope it doesn't happen. Only until we get to the part of the divorce are we going to find out 100% what's going to happen next. Let's talk about Belsac! Yay! We love our our good our good man Belsac and he's, he's not a man. He's like also 10. Well, he's 10 when she's 7, so she's 
eight or nine now, I believe. So he's, he's like 11, 12. And he is a moron through and through. Like, honestly, he never learns from his mistakes. He just keeps doing them. Like, he just keeps insulting her. He just keeps physically abusing her, even though he, he gets in trouble for it. And maybe it's because the severity of his punishment or scolding has been very low that he just continues to do it and never learns from it. But he should honestly get his Lombardi name and rights taken away from him because he's like with the villains. Apparently he and the first prince become best friends. So I know that they're just plotting something together against Florentia. And I don't know what's going to happen with that. So I'm just positive that he's a villain. Because even if he's not an official villain, he's a villain in my mind. Because anyone who abuses our female lead is a villain in my mind. Is, is, is a villain in my mind. But yeah, last time I think he severely injured Tia and she got a, con- she got a c- concussion and passed out from blood to the head. Um, and when that happened, he got thoroughly scolded with Estelio and they were just like, the grandfather was really mad at them. So the, he threatened them with like the, the most that he's ever done, saying that he will take away the Lombardi name if they do something like this again and that they can't use swords if they can't use them properly because the whole thing was that they beat Tia with the wooden swords what actually happened was they hit her on the head with a ball so she ended up that's how she ended up getting her wound but the twins before she passed out came and saw her and Belsack was like holding a wooden sword so they all assumed that he was beating her with the wooden sword which isn't what happened but Tia when she woke up decided not to correct anyone because they deserved it and Bad bitch move, honestly. 100% support. Just take advantage of the situation because they they 100% deserve it. But on that note, the grandfather was extremely angry with them. And he was like, if you're not going to use your sword to protect the weak, if you're going to harm the weak, then you can't use your sword until you learn how to use it properly. So it was pretty bad. And I was like, okay, that should do it. Like that should, te- Be- that should teach Belisac a lesson. He should calm down. Um... Especially since the grandfather also banned him from seeing Tia ever again and being in contact with her. Um, So I was like, that should definitely put him in his place. You'd think so, right? But this moron stumbles out of the room being like, this is all her fault. I'm the one that's injured because he like broke his arm. Um, Because one of the twins knocked the sword out of his hand, breaking his arm in the process. And... He was, Belsack was like, my arm's the one that injured, my pride is broken, that wench did everything to me, and my life is falling apart because of her, and I have to get my revenge. So this idiot still hasn't learned that he should just stop trying to get revenge for something that he doesn't need to get revenge for. If anything, Tia needs to get revenge, but she's just kind of like brushing him off, brushing him and his existence off, like the queen that she is, and he's just mulling over this day and night um but the fact that he's not learning uh shows that he's shows me that he's gonna continue to do something he's gonna continue to plot and he's eventually going to do something terrible and I hope that when that day comes because I don't want it to come but I know it's going to so when that day comes I hope that he finally gets disowned by his family I don't care if he's 10 years old he is evil 100% evil um and being a Lombardi, there's no way that he's going to be homeless. He just doesn't deserve to become a successor or have any of the privileges that come with comes with his family's name because he abuses it. So, 
let's talk about Sir Vestian. So Sir Vestian are the is he's the twins' dad and Aunt Chinanette's husband. And I thought he was really nice at first because the very first time we see him, he's like gives off this really lovey-dovey persona with Chenonette. Yeah, and he is like super lovey with the kids and he was like patting tea on the head and is like happy birthday and all that. And I was like, oh, like what another amazing couple. And I was thinking this right before Tia was thinking this, but I was thinking, why do they end up getting divorced? Because they it, they seem so happy. Like, why do they get divorced? Like, I'd, I'll be really sad if that happens still. And right as Tia walks out of the room, she thinks the same thing. And I'm like, okay, I guess we'll find out later. Um, and for whatever reason, the dad, Sir Vestian, starts giving really weird vibes. Like, while Tia's walking, he, like, shoves her and glares at her on the way to their family gathering. And the the twins, like, run up behind her and is like, oh, are you okay? Like, our dad just doesn't like any of our cousins. And Tia's like, oh, why why is that? And they're, and they're like, oh, we're not really supposed to tell anyone because this is, like, a secret amongst the Schultz family men. But it's you, Tia, so, like, it's fine, we'll tell you. Because they're children, so, of course, they don't know how to keep a secret. And so they, they tell her that their dad, Sorvestian, hates the Lombardi family and wants to, like, take everything from them. And Tia's like, oh, so that's not good. Um, and, she, and everything finally clicks into place. And so this is a spoiler because it has not been revealed in... No, what I'm about to say, that is. What I'm about to say is a spoiler because it has not been revealed yet in the manhwa. But it is related to Sorvestian. And... It is that Servestian is also a lying cheater, so he is having multiple affairs on the side. Um, and not only that, but he is stealing from the Lombardi family with the businesses that he has. And those factors are what lead up to the divorce between him and Aunt Chenonette. And I'm really eagerly awaiting for the truth to be revealed because apparently Tia will help in that process of revealing that. The only thing that's stopping Aunt Chenonette from becoming the successor of the Lombardi family is her husband, Servestian, is that grandfather, Rulak, who is Aunt Chenonette's father, doesn't like Servestian and doesn't want him to be in a position of power as Chenonette's husband. So that's why he's not making her the next matriarch. But I believe after they divorce, Aunt Chenonette becomes head ruler for a little bit, while grandfather Rulak is sick I believe but I all once again do not know this because this is a theory this is speculation I saw this in one of the spoiler comments so we'll just have to see where the story takes us but I know that the divorce is 100% going to happen and I'm e I am now eagerly awaiting it now that I know what has truly happened and the true per personality of Servestian that he's not a nice guy and that his entire lovey-dovey couple uh, shebang with Aunt Chenonette is just an act. Um, but Aunt Chenonette is 100% a queen, icon, badass bitch, and I love her so much. She is, uh, literally the supportive mother figure to Tia, and I love to see it because so many aunts, once again, in Manhwas are really cruel and very judgmental, um, and you don't see that happening all that much. You don't, you don't see, like, a close aunt and niece, together so somehow it's just really really sweet to see because I, I thought that that Shenanette was going to be judgmental of Tia since she told her brother Galahan that 
a lion doesn't come out of a coward, basically saying that there's no way Tia is going to be like super bold and brave because Galahan is a coward. So like if he raises her to be a coward, there's no way that she's going to end up becoming a lion, right? So she said that, but then she witnesses with her own two eyes how Tia is a very strong, brave uh, girl who stands up for herself and also very smart and bright. So she, they end up growing closer together. But it's sweet because she always offers to babysit Tia. And I just, I love the, the close relationship between some parts of the family. Obviously, there are other parts of the family, like the uncles and we just, and the other, and the, and the cousins, Belisac and Stelio, we hate them. They are, <laughs> they are a part of the family that we do not accept. But there are some members of the family that we do really, really love. And I hope they will continue to support our female lead in the future. So that was the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for staying until the end. It means a lot to me that you made it this far. Um, there are no sponsors or a Patreon yet, but maybe sometimes in the future. If you really enjoyed I'll Be the Matriarch in This Life, some recommendations I have for you would be The Remarried Empress, Who Made Me a Princess, and Death is the Only End for the Villainess. It is not necessarily similar to I'll Be the Matriarch in This Life in terms of plot, but I do think that if you enjoyed this manhwa, you'll really enjoy those as well. Go support me on Instagram uh, at manhua, manhua underscore Main Street, and I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.